Hello, and welcome to the Judo Way of Life podcast. Today, I'm joined by Australian Paralympian Wayne Phipps. Hello, Wayne. Thank you for joining us today. Good day, David. Yeah, good to speak to you. Just like to get started with how you got started in judo yourself, where it all began. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, a sort of a nice story for myself because I was suffering from asthma from birth, quite severe asthma, and ended up in hospital. You know, those oxygen tents when you, you know, can't breathe at night and a couple of those things happened in my early years. And my dad was sort of, we were walking to our grand, to my grand one day and he passed a judo, local judo club, Puma, in our local sort of suburb and thought, you know, a bit of judo and exercise will be good for my lungs. as just from an exercise point of view. And also, I wasn't the most muscular kid growing up. I was quite skinny and tiny. So besides the, you know, helping my asthma, you thought judo would be quite a good uh, good sport and to help my just my physical, you know, growth and confidence. And that's basically outside of just purely to be a, a health benefit to myself. How old were you when, when you started? I was eight, eight years old when I started and it took a, a good, good couple of years to, to get into it and start to, you know, start learning you know, the various aspects of, of judo and eventually, you know, trying to just win a club fight. It took years and years of, of just training and practice and learning. And was this in South Africa? Yeah, this was in Port Elizabeth, uh, South Africa, where, where it all started. What was the, the, the judo scene like there at the time? The judo scene was quite, well, in Port Elizabeth, Eastern Cape, the state the province that I was from, it's all comparative to what you, you know, just what you are used to. So for me, it was, it was massive. They used to have inter-club competitions, you know, one club would fight another club on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. They would have monthly, you know, competitions where there would be hundreds and hundreds of participants. And this is, you know, still in my early years when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, that period of time. It was all just wow. It's like for, back then, thinking back now, I've obviously moved on and seen better and experienced bigger things. But back then, that was that was massive for, for a young kid being involved in, you know, in Port Elizabeth. And then the nationals were well attended. You would get, you know, one and a half thousand juniors taking part in a, in a national tournament. You know, back then, the weight groups weren't age-wise. So when you fought under 36 kilograms or under 33 kilograms it was doesn't matter what age you were you, you just that you just entered as you know if you're under 18 you were a junior and you entered into your weight category and i remember some nationals having 40 45 um, <laughs> contestants to deal with so it was it was huge as a young kid growing up and a massive challenge and what was it about the judo that kept you interested it was winning their very first fight like i said it took years and i got thrown around and you'd enter a local club competition and you just get you know what it's like you, you either get thrown at your pawn or held down in a in a hold down that you can't get out of and then i lost interest for a while but my dad just kept on you know saying just persevere persevere and we put a little bit of extra training in on the side with he was a very sporty uh, and a, a really good motivator as well uh, being having a sporting background himself and he just kept on on motivating me really and then winning that very first fight at a Eastern Province, like a state competition. And this guy was the reigning national champion. He had won the nationals the previous year. And I think it was like under 30 kilograms back then. And I won a fight against him. And back in those days, fights went to Hantai. They didn't have golden scores. So you had the touch judges that would raise their flags and choose the winner. And I took him to Hantai and, and she won the, won the fight as a yellow belt against, I think he was blue belt back then, green or blue, a national champion. And that was just really... That was the turning point. Name was Wayne Smith. Never forget it. We still chat on Messenger and, and keep up to date with each other. And yeah, we had, a, we had a good couple of years of rivalry after that. But just winning that very first fight after a good couple of years of, 
of trying and training and learning learning the sport was was the game changer for me. And I decided to ask, with your visual impairment, yeah, have you always had that, or is that something that's developed in the later years? Yeah, so it was diagnosed twenty fifteen, and the specialist said to me that my condition normally it gets brought on the deterioration start to. You should feel the, the deterioration of your eyes with my condition in your mid-20s. And thinking back, because I was diagnosed in 2015, which would have made me 42, 43. So for 15 years, roughly, I would have had the condition deteriorating over, you know, gradually over a long period of time. And he's, he was, he's correct. I mean, I remember back in my 20s, I was a good squash player at school. And, you know, my dad used to play squash. We used to play squash as a family with my brother and everyone. And I remember in my early 20s, I started, you know, not following the ball properly because it's a peripheral condition. So it's like tunnel vision. My peripheral retina has sort of gradually died and the cells have died over time, which also leads to sort of night blindness, so in dark areas I don't, I don't see well at all. Um, so I'm, I'm like totally night blind, but during the day, my central vision is still fine, but the peripheral awareness has, has died off. Yeah, and I, I, I'm thinking back, it was 100% correct. I think I've had this condition since my mid to late 20s. And it's been slowly deteriorating since since then, but really only di- diagnosed uh, in 2015 when I really had problems seen at night. And my daughter said to me, Dad, just go see someone, see what's going on, because, you know, it, it, she can see something and I can't. And I, I thought, okay, there's something really wrong here. So I went to have it checked out and yeah. And did you notice the difference with the, your judo, uh, you know, in your 20s? Because I know you mentioned squash then. Did you find any kind of... Yes. Yeah, so, so judo, I, I, in, my, in my early 20s, mid-20s, even to my late 20s, I was actually fighting at, at the highest level in South Africa. I went to, I made the Springbok team to go to a World Championship um, event in Hamilton, Canada in 1993 as a 20-year-old. And I was, I was ranked one, two, top two in the country for a string of eight years and then fought the Japanese in a test match in 1998. But I didn't notice on the judo-specifically side, I didn't notice any deterioration in my eyes. And I think... It might be because judo is, be, you know, it's a close-up sport where where you you're in contact with someone and you you've once you've got a grip, really you just need to know you, you need to be aware of what's going on. But it's not a ball game, for example, like squash, where you need to follow a ball around and chase yourself around the court. But I I think maybe the reason was maybe my eyes were so just gradually deteriorating at such a slow rate that I just got used to it, I suppose, as the years went on. So obviously, with the judo, the the visually impaired athletes are, are categorised. Uh, is there three categories in terms of sight? Yes. I'll say sight. And yeah, so which yeah. category are you in now? So I'm, I'm B3. So B1 are, are, are totally blind athletes. BT, B2 have uh, visual impairments, severe visual impairments. And B3 are also severe visual impairments, but not as severe as B2. So the entry into judo, uh, para judo is B3. The categories go on B4 and B5, etc. But uh, you need to be a B3 to to be classified for the paragino here. How did you find so the transition between the competitions that you've done in the past, the subtle differences with how to compete in the VI competitions, as in you know gripping up at the start of the fight? Did you find this a big sort of difference? Yeah, hundred percent. Personally, a, a lot of my visually impaired judo tournaments was a massive adjustment starting from the standing grip and you're not allowed to break grip. Uh, quite a few of my techniques uh, that I would, I would, that my favorite techniques were from, you know, the normal way of starting judo from a distance and then fighting for that grip. And I had some techniques I, I could 
go-to, by go-to techniques from various scripts of breaking, et cetera, et cetera. And all those were, were taken away from, you know, in, in the way that, you know, my training had to change because I couldn't do that anymore. I literally had to start a fight with a standing grip and then I wasn't able to break any grip to get to to gain an advantage i could change a grip but i couldn't break a grip and that there was a massive change a massive i didn't even train for my very first comp uh, like that I, I just went into the first comp and just it was as it was, everything was new to me it was the world champs in in portugal in november 2018 my training hadn't changed at all it was a similar training schedule and i didn't fight visually impaired fighting at all in training and that was my very first comp just experienced that and, and it was a big one uh, eye opener as to what a big difference it was fighting from a standing grip and when when you fought in portugal was that representing australia or south africa still no that was australia and that was the start of my qualification process for tokyo so that was the very first qualification tournament available on the calendar and paralympics said that's one to go to to see how you do to see if we can give you a bit of backing going you know going forward so that was that was a starting point and so when when you moved to Australia, did you have your your eyes set on trying to go to the Paralympics? Was that something you you you'd wanted to do, or is that something, as I say, that's just evolved? As no, so yeah, so so when I came to Australia, I was literally doing judo socially back in South Africa at my age. It was mid thirties, so I used to fight train socially. I love judo. I love I love the training, but I used to take part in in the local comps and fight sort of the age group, you know, the masters categories. So you know, thirty five to forties, for example. And I did that when I got to Australia. I joined the local judo club, Kano, and uh, I trained, fought in some, you know, local competitions, went to the nationals. You know, you fight in my master's category and, you know, I haven't, I've won national titles in my in my age group for, you know, four or five years. But just no, my goals were, my Olympic dream ended in the in the 90s when I was in my mid-20s when I was at my, my personally, you know, physical peak in judo as a, as a mid 20 year old always had a dream of going to the olympics it never materialized and that was that was it you know the start of this process in 20 it started in 2016 when i was chatting to paralympics australia but the actual start of the fighting and competing process in 2018 it was just <laughs> i still sometimes shake my head and and think how uh, it's un- unfolded as it has is unbelievable so so what was that point obviously you, got, you said you got diagnosed in 2015 and then you were talking to the Paralympic Australia in 2016. So where, where, what was the, the point where, is it something you thought, okay, well, this is something I could do or did somebody else put the idea in your head to go? Yeah, so what happened was I got di- diagnosed 2015 July and with the diagnosis, the ophthalmologist said, you can't allow me to drive anymore. So I still remember walking out of there with this diagnosis, a shock to my system. You know, I had to phone family to come pick me up because I was literally wasn't allowed to drive anymore. So then... Your whole world sort of, you know, my whole world sort of trying to figure out life, you know, with this condition. I can't take my kids to, you know, sporting events anymore. I mean, I need to, I feel like I'm independent, you know, asking people for lifts here and there and all the rest. And that was a, it was just a struggle to get my head around everything. And it wasn't easy. It didn't take a couple of months. It took, well, I'm still sometimes thinking to myself, you know, I wish I could just come in a car and just drive somewhere and be for my, you know, if something goes wrong with my kids and just be there for them. But I can't. So I've, I've learned to work around it. But I've, I just literally went AWOL from judo for eight months. And, and my judo coach, uh, Carlo, phoned me up and said, hey, where you been? What's going on? And I said, no, I've got this eye condition and I'm just trying to figure things out with work and this and family and all the rest. So he says, well, come around for a barbecue and let's have a couple of beers and we can chat. So I went around to his house and had some beers. And he said, you know, visually impaired judo is part of the para program. So I said, oh, really? I, I didn't know that. He says, why don't you make some inquiries? And that's where 
I got on to Paralympics Australia and I dropped uh, a inquiry, like an online inquiry as to how do I go about it? What's the first step? And uh, Tim Matthews phoned me up literally 10 minutes after I dropped the inquiry. And he said, look, because that was in 2016, he said, Rio is literally kicking off in a couple of weeks, but we can look at Tokyo. And he said, first step is get classified. Make sure your eye condition is meets the requirements for classification. Um, and then that's what I did. I figured out where to go, get classified. And she got that and went through all the ophthalmologist reports, which is other, you know, forms you need to fill in and all the rest. And went, I sent it back to them and they said, yep, you, you classified as B3 and it, you know, means you, you can take part in vision impaired judo, which is a win. And then 2017, I was waiting for my Aussie passport for my citizenship to come through. So I couldn't fight for Australia at any comps and, and had an Aussie passport. And then basically my passport came through early 2018 and they said, right, timing's perfect because the qualification sort of kicks off uh, in November with the world champs in Portugal. We want you to go there. He has a little bit of, uh, they gave me a little bit of money to help with a small portion of the cost. And I said, beautiful, let's target that one. And then I started training, like really training hard <laughs> to go to Portugal and just see how, how, how that went. So that was sort of the, the process between my diagnosis and the very first comp that I went to in Portugal, 20, November, I think it was, 2018. And you say you, that was your first one and you hadn't really trained specifically for the, the VI rules. So how much of a, like, how, how did he go on the day? Yeah, it went better than I expected. I didn't expect to actually win a fight, to be honest. And I ended that tournament. I ended up getting through, I won my first fight, lost my second to a guy that actually went on to podium finish. And I thought I did relatively well against him. And then won my third in the ripper charge. And then I lost my fourth. So I ended up having four fights, which for me was 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 a win. And I gained that experience in, you know, fighting, fighting, VR fighting. And yeah, Paralympics Australia said, wow, that was an awesome achievement. And yeah, let's let's see what we can do to help you along your way. And then how did things look from there in terms of training? Did you start to implement more specific, like you say, for the, the, the gripping strategies into your training? Yeah, I tried. And I, I suppose I've got to be honest with myself. I probably should have tried a, a lot earlier in the process. So the last six months leading up to Tokyo and the last qualification comp which was in june in the in birmingham in the uk i concentrated more on the vr type fighting but initially after the world champs i thought oh you know i did okay and my training didn't really change much to thinking back it should have but my training didn't really change that much uh, in the club fighting you know um just training and fighting the way i would normally fight because i suppose i thought well it didn't go too badly you know at the first comp and i'll just see how it goes yeah, so in hindsight, I think I should have taken it on board like from the start because there were def definitely different techniques I could have worked on you know, back in 2018 that would have helped me going forward. And what was your next competition after Portugal? Did the Paralympic, Australia Paralympic team, did they give you specific competitions that they wanted you to fight in or did you map out your own plan for qualification? No, so, so basically from the start of the process uh, when after Portugal, Paralympics Australia said to me, right, there's, a, there's the International Blind Sports Association calendar, which is the, the organization which organizes all the international blind sports. So that was on, on their website. Judo is obviously a visually impaired and blind sport. So there's a judo section that's affiliated to IPSA. And on the, un, under there was all the information of, of calendars of, of events. And they had everything there from training camps to uh, which which events were like Olympic qualifiers where you gained points for, which weren't, and all the rest. So that that was my my contact via 
that was me sorting that out with the help of Paralympics Australia and Blind Sports Australia. They directed me to follow their calendar, IPSA calendar, and they left it up to me to decide which comps I wanted to go to or could afford to go to and all the rest. Judo Australia, funny enough, had nothing to do with it. Uh, I did approach them once to say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm trying to qualify for Tokyo. A Paralympics Australia gave me a little bit of money to try and get to as many tournaments as, as, as I could. And I, I did approach Judo Australia and I just got a very blank reply saying, you're not on our, you're not our focus and you, 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 we don't have a budget for you. Sorry. So I knew exactly where I stood then with Judo Australia, which is really weird because I've been affiliated with them since 2010 when I got here. But really, it was it was Paralympics Australia guiding me through the process, which I've mentioned in a couple of interviews, and I'm so grateful to them for for that, and even just showing faith in me by funding a little bit of money to help some of the expenses. So, so sorry to get back to you uh, to answer your question. Baku was the next qualifying tournament, and that was in May 2019. So I went to that one, and I, I ended in a similar similar position on ninth winning two fights, losing two fights. So after the World Champs tournament in November, I obviously wasn't ranked at all, so I didn't exist in their database until that tournament. And I gained quite a few points in that with that result. After Baku, I, in the ninth day, I also gained quite a few points, and I think I was up to maybe like 36th or 38th in the world after just the two tournaments. And Paralympics Australia gave me a sort of a target of saying, try crack the top 20 if you could. With, with, the, with the tournaments that you're going to get to because they take the top 12 as an automatic qualification. But if you just crack the top 20, there's always a chance of a, of a wildcard entry. So the next tournament that I went to was Baku in May 2019. And then I just when you go on these trips, were you going on your own or do you have a coach go with you? Oh, no, no, it was on my own. Like I said, the, the bit of funding I, I received didn't last very long. It was, I think it covered a, a trip and a half. And the rest was just self-funded. And if a coach was going to go with me, it was going to be self-funded. So I just, I, I arranged everything myself. I contacted the sports, you know, the organizers of the event and I did my own entries and, you know, booked all my own flights and everything. And how did you find that as well? Because obviously you're dealing with your, your visual impairment, you're dealing with fighting different sorts of different sets of rules and then also doing yeah. it on your own. Uh, how, how did you find the trips? <laughs> It was was not easy. Uh, some of the, well, just organising some of the trips were quite stressful, especially when COVID came along. They, that was just insanely stressful. But uh, initially, the the the, the comps were organised so so well that when you when you enter and you've got your flights and you give them your arrival times, they literally meet you at the airport. This is even pre-COVID. Meet you at the airport and they they provide all the accommodation costs. They add a premium on on for costs, but that covers all transport. So you, I didn't have to worry about getting anywhere once I arrived at the airport of my at the destination airport. The organisers were really good with all the comps. They they literally drove you to the hotel, and in the hotel area they would have a training facility with a with a mat where you didn't have to get you know you didn't have to travel too far to go train. And the venues were in general walking distance from the hotel. And then there, there, there would be other athletes. You know, if I had a problem with my my eyesight, which I don't have during the day. I am quite mobile on my own during the day at night. Like I said, I was, you know, being night blind was more of a problem. Getting to the venues and back were were, were great. So the, the organization of the of the events were were really, really good and well well run and well organized. So for me it was just getting there. And once I was there, I was in the hands of the organizers, which was which was awesome. Yeah, good. And then leading so leading into beginning of twenty twenty where did you sort of rank if you know if the Olympics were to go uh, to have gone ahead 2020 where would where did you rank in the, the listing 
Yep. So to finish off 2019 after Baku, there was a tournament in uh, Kazakhstan in September, and that was an Asia Open tournament. So that was one one of my worst trips to get to that tournament. To fly there was just not me. I had to change so many times, and I, I missed a connection. And then I had to stay in the, at the airport for 24 hours trying to rework. You know, it's just it was a nightmare trip <laughs> getting there, and. I, because of the time and length it was taking me to get there, booked to come back from that from Kazakhstan on the on the afternoon on the same day that I was fighting, uh, thinking that I wouldn't make the finals, the final like the gold the gold and bronze medal matches, which normally I'd fall out, you know, in the earlier rounds, win two, maybe win one fight, win another, and then lose in rapid charge, and my day will be done by lunchtime, and I'll have enough time to get to the airport. But Kazakhstan, I've got a buy in the first round, uh, lucky enough, and won my second and ended up in the semifinals where I lost to a guy that went on to win the tournament, uh, which put me down into the bronze medal fight. So they said, come back for the, you know, for the, the, the finals block later on this afternoon. I, I thought, I'm going to miss my flight. So I went back and with all my bags packed and I asked my driver, I said, please, when I come off this mat, I'm not even changing out of my judo, judo gear. Can you just, can we jump in the car and just race to the airport? Uh, and they were they, they were very very helpful and kind, but I missed my flight, uh, but I, and I lost the match. So I ended up fifth, which was my best result at that point. And I can't remember what happened with my ranking after that one. But out of the eight qualifying tournaments, I worked out financially. I was able to get to four. So there were two more that I wanted to go to in early 2020, and there was actually three. There were there was a training camp in Tokyo, a non qualifying tournament, but a training camp. I thought it would be beneficial to go there. Get a taste of Tokyo, number one, and two. You 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 tra- you're having a training camp against the, you know, or with any everyone. It was open to all the athletes worldwide, but you'll be training with it's a Japanese-based training, so you know the home of judo. And then from there, in April, I was supposed to go to Birmingham in the UK for that Grand Prix event, and then in May back to Baku. And those were the the remaining tournaments that I had booked and paid for, and COVID hit, and they were all basically canned. So I didn't attend any any tournaments in 2020. So with those tournaments lined up, I was hoping with those results that I would crack the top 20 leading into qualification for, for Tokyo. And then, so fast forward to sort of the beginning of 2021, how were things sitting then? Right, so 2021 came along and the last, there were only two tournaments left on the calendar anyway that, that, that popped up in January to qualify for Tokyo. And it was the, the Baku tournament and it was the UK event. So the plan was the same to get to both. And that's what I, that's what I was saying earlier that the planning that trip became a, a, a small nightmare <laughs> because of COVID. It was, you know, the, the Baku tournament was a month before the UK tournament, which means if I went to Baku and came back to Australia, I'd have to hotel quarantine for two weeks, which I didn't want to do and then leave a week later and get to the UK tournament coming out of quarantine wouldn't be ideal. So the plan was to fly to Baku and then, uh, train there, find a training facility and train there for two weeks or two and a half weeks and then fly to the UK for that event and then come back to Australia just once and then quarantine, hotel quarantine. So I planned that. I, I got a hold of the agent this time with COVID. I thought, no, I'm not going to book these flights myself. I'm going to just go through an agent, pay the premium and and hopefully, you know, to cover all insurances and all t- types of things that can go wrong. Luckily, I did because the Baku event changed to Turkey because things went haywire at Baku. So they had to change flights from from Perth to Turkey, UK, back to Perth. And then a week or so later, Turkey's COVID cases went through the roof and they changed the tournament back to Baku. So then I had to get a hold of the agent to say, can you please change my flights again? Um, that's now back in Baku. And then the, it was, I think it was the 
a week before I was due to leave, Turkey got red listed by the UK as a country that if you're flying via through, even transitioning through Turkey, you won't be allowed to enter the UK. And I, that was exactly my, my trip from Baku to the UK. And I chatted to the agent and I said, is there any way to get me to the UK? You know, that's not going through Turkey. This is from, from Baku. And she took a couple of days to come back to me and said, there are so limited flights now, you know, and all the rest. And I just said to her, you know what, just can it. Just can Baku, can that leg of the trip. I feel it's just going to be too risky being away for so long, number one. And I just, I'm just scared. If I'm in Baku for so long, I'm going to struggle to get into the UK because the entry rules are all different for different countries as well. Yeah, and, and luckily I did because I felt such a huge relief cancelling the Baku side of the trip and just being able to go to the UK for the tournament, give it my best, come back into hotel quarantine. And luckily I did that because friends that I've, I've met on the circuit from South Africa actually were doing the same thing and planning to go to Baku and then the UK. And they were literally got stuck in Baku and weren't allowed to enter the UK. They weren't allowed to leave the airport to the UK because of the fact they stayed in Baku and they didn't have the proper you know, COVID results, the ones that they were specifically needing and all the rest. So they, their trip was stuffed up by going to Baku and that to return to South Africa. So in the end, the two tournaments that I um, planned to go to, it was cut short and I only ended up going to the UK, the UK event. And how did that one go? Yeah, that one went as, as, as well as the Kazakhstan one. I won my first fight against the eighth-ranked guy in the world. I went golden score. But funny enough, I felt so good in that fight. I just Sometimes you fight and you feel like, oh, you're under the pump, you're just behind all the time. And you, you start thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get ahead in this fight. That fight, I actually felt like I was, I was not in control, but I felt I, somehow I had it. Although it went you know, the distance and two, two and a half minutes into golden score, I somehow had a, a belief that I, I could win that fight, and I did. And then I lost in the semifinals... Also, there's a small draw as well because of the numbers. They, they, you didn't have the you know, 30 contestants that were at the World Champs, for example. Because of COVID, they were choosing you know, which comps to go to. So I lost in the semifinals um, on that, in that fight, and then that put me into the bronze medal fight, which I was quite disappointed in. I, I don't mind losing if, I, if I'm losing to a, a better fighter and I've given it my best. But that I uh, really felt I was the better fighter. I made a stupid error, and I got held down in a Usakumi. So I lost the bronze medal fights, but in it fifth. Anyway, which is still a decent result for me based on my previous qualifying events where, you know, I've ended ninth as, as my, my top ranking. So I was happy with that. And then did that give you the direct qualification for the Paralympics? No. So what happened was, so now I'm sitting in hotel quarantine coming back from that tournament and I was, I was anxiously waiting the world ranking list to be updated. And Paralympics Australia said, as soon as the world ranking list is updated, we'll see where you are and if you haven't cracked the top 12 which is automatic qualification we'll do a bar party application so anywhere anyone in the world can do an application for a wild card entry and they were they, the rankings were released and i cracked the top 20 which is just number 20 and they said that's going to help the you know that'll help the, the process and they put they yeah they, they they put an application together and yeah i don't know what they put in it and i don't know how that worked out but yeah at uh, six weeks, I think it was before Tokyo kicked off, I got the news that I'd they've accepted my wild card entry, which was which was it was like a week and a half after coming out of quarantine that I got the news, and yeah, that that's 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 what happened. And how did your training go from that that point? So leading into the uh, leading to Tokyo, yeah. So so coming off to UK, I had a couple of days in London flying out from Heathrow. I stayed with a friend of mine. So they had limited flights leaving you know, and coming, you know, arriving in Australia. So I had about four days there. So I just chilled with him and, and then relaxed and caught up an old school friend of mine. Arriving into hotel quarantine for two weeks, 
look, I try to keep active and busy in hotel in, in the room, but there's only so much you can do in a hotel room. So I try to do a half an hour little session, but so I'm, I'm, I'm not blaming hotel quarantine, but my fitness did sort of go backwards in those three weeks between the tournament and when I had the news. So I went to see the sports, the personal trainer at the WA Institute of Sport once I heard I made it. And I made an urgent appointment with him just to say, can I come down? I really need some help and guidance to get up to fitness ASAP. Yeah. So I had, I had my training program that I use and that I, that I, 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 that I always use a similar program, you know, over the years for pre-tournament pro- training. But I didn't want to overwork my body and pick up an injury, you know, at the late stages as well. So he gave me some really, really good advice on loading and volume and all the rest just to ease myself back into it for two weeks. And I followed his advice, his advice and it was brilliant. And really on the judo mat as well, it took me those two weeks as well just to get back in the field of judo fitness specifically. And uh, yeah, when it came to week three, possibly four and five, I felt like I was really getting back to where I was. And I was in week six, so it was time to leave. So the timing was literally perfect. But I had some really good guidance with regards to my training program just to get me back in. I was just really, really worried that I'd pick up an injury that was just going to spoil it for me. So that all worked out fine in the end. Got there feeling good and uh, injury-free. And I'm assuming the the trip out to Tokyo was a little bit smoother than some of the other trips you've described. Oh, that was wonderful. I didn't have to do anything. (laughs) (laughs) I just literally had to, you know... they told me what was going on when I was going to leave and they Paralympics Australia arranged everything from the moment I left home to the moment I arrived back um, in Perth last week Friday. The month that I was gone, I had to arrange nothing. It was all done for me and that was the most wonderful feeling. And how did you feel going out to the, the Paralympics? Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. You know, in the bit of sport, as we chatted already, most of my travels, all my travels are done, was done on my own, you know, being a part of a bigger team was just unbelievable, knowing that my little sport actually, you know, is just a little speckle in, in, in the bigger scheme of things. And then at the same time, being the Paralympics, you know, you meet these incredible athletes and people that have been through, everyone's got a story, right? And it's and just, just the, the what, what some of those athletes have been through in life that's got them to that point is, is really inspiring to, to witness. So, which, which puts a different perspective on life in general. And it takes competing there it's just as as a win for a lot of athletes like i found myself just getting there as, as that was my win irrespective of what happens on game day and you know, on the actual fight day i was just happy that i made it got onto the mat gave it my best irrespective of the outcome it just you know being being part of that that movement once it was just really uh, so much respect for all those athletes that get there and everyone else that tries even tried to get there didn't get there everyone that just tries and gives something a go is is like total respect to them and was that your first time then visiting Japan and competing there? No, I, in 2020, when I meant to go to the training camp in Tokyo, which was cancelled a week before I was due to leave because of COVID, I couldn't get a refund on my flights. So I, I used the flights anyway, and I just used that two weeks. I think it was like eight days. I used the eight days just to tour around and, and just get a feel of, of Japan, Tokyo specifically. So it was my second visit, okay. basically, to, to Tokyo. Yeah, The first one was just a scenic as, as a scenic trip to just check out things and, you know, love the place. Definitely going to go back for holiday and explore more for sure. Yeah, it's a fantastic place. I, I've trained there a few times. Never competed though oh, in yeah? Japan. Oh, okay. But I've been to train and it's, there's just a different feel. Obviously, we'll be the home of judo. There's, there's just a different attitude to the, to the sport, I, th- I found. Oh, yeah, 100%. The, the Budokai, where we trained, like seven floors. 
like the building is a judo building and they have seven floors of 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 training just for judo it was insane like it was really just to just to see a, a specific building that's built just purely for judo is it was me for a massive a massive eye opener yeah and even the um like i don't know if you ever got to one of the uh mizuno superstores the uh, shopping stores for the the clothing brand and there's like a full floor desire de- dedicated just to judo suits oh really no we didn't yeah and it's just something like some, some stuff like that you know coming from the uk judo is not that big and in australia judo is not that big so you're know, yeah. going to a country where <laughs> judo is one of the sort of the main sports it's just quite a nice feeling i, I know it's, it's uh, we didn't get to any of the shops they were they were closed obviously with covid restrictions and all the rest but the the actual stadium the 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 Budo, Budokan, I think it was the name of the stadium we fought in, and that stadium was built purely for judo competitions. And that's insane. Like, I come from a, you know, a background of, I mean, you only have stadiums like of that nature for big sports like rugby and cricket and all the rest. And they've got this massive stadium for judo, specifically for judo, for judo competitions. And that was just for me, like, insane. Best of my knowledge, I'm pretty sure the tickets for originally for the, the when it was, should have been in the 2020 sold out. It was one of the fastest sports to sell out. Oh, really? Was it? Yeah. Oh, that would have been insane to have a packed out stadium, you know, competing. Yeah, imagine that packed out. So on, on the day of the competition, you mind if you just still go through how everything unfolded? Yeah, we had a good lead up in training with my training partner, Calvin, that came along. And the day of the competition, we, there was a beautiful, you know, training and warm-up area. We were, had a chance to get out into the main venue just briefly for half an hour just walk around and just get a feel for the for the stage that, that had been set. Yeah, we, had, we went through our warm-up routine, which was pretty much, you know, a, a similar routine that we did during the week when we were training. And yeah, it, it, it was just a, uh, the, I think the, when I, I was first fired up and um, standing there ready, ready to be announced and walking down and getting ready to walk into the mat, I think that's where it hit me and said, right, this is it. I've made it this far. I'm literally going to walk onto this mat and that's, that's, that's my goal. Done, and I think at that stage, all expectations then sort of, I just felt it just sort of a relief in a way that I got that far. I'm going to now just give it my best, irrespective of what happens. And also, you know, to that point with all the training and everything that's, that's, you know, I had to go through to, to get to that point. I just always felt like it was a, a massive relief that I'd eventually got there. Yeah, it was an incredible experience walking onto that mat, knowing uh, there were cameras on and you know, people back home were watching. I was inundated with messages the, the week leading up and good luck and we're going to watch and all the rest. And, you know, uh, it was just an awesome, amazing, amazing experience. And what was the, so you fought the Mongolian first fight and uh, I remember I was watching him myself and he looked like a very tenacious individual. Yeah, he, he was strong. Googled him just to, you know, try and figure out because I had never fought him before and I had never seen him fight. And he had been to, you know, I think that was his third Olympics. So he, he was quite experienced. I think he podiumed at a world champs before. So he was ranked six for this tournament. So I knew it wasn't going to be easy. Yeah. And in hindsight, I watched my own fight back a couple of days later. I just watched my own, my own fight. And I suppose I, I, I had a bit of lack of that international experience because when I was a shooto down for not, you know, being behind a bit on attacking. I, I, I felt while I was fighting, I thought I'm way behind. Yeah. I need to, I need to push to get back in it. And it pushed me to make a silly, silly error. I attacked a, a throw that I hardly ever do. And I was off balance. But watching my fight back, you know, a couple of days later, I thought I wasn't that far behind. I got the shit. yes, that was, that was good. That was the right call. But if I just carried on getting back in into the fight like I was, 
was the, the last couple of rounds that I, I felt I'd, I'd, I'd upper hand sort of in, in attacks. So yeah, I suppose a lack, bit of lack of international experience pushed me to try and force a throw that wasn't there, which ended up making me, you know, losing my balance and he, and he threw me. But yeah, I still, like I said, no, just being on that mat fighting at that level against these guys. You know, I was giving 18 years away in, in physical conditioning to these guys. I think the oldest competitor was 32, and then I'm, you know, or 34, I think it was, and I'm 48. So like I said, you know, the, the, uh, just getting there for me was the win, but yeah, he, he was a, he was a tough, he was a tough nut. Tough nut to crack. Yeah, because I think it's an um, incredible achievement, say, um, in the past sort of six years, actually dealing with the diagnosis and then turning it around and, and then qualifying. Yeah. Very impressive. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, and then following to, obviously following the competition, how did the rest of the trip look? Yeah, so I was allowed to, all the athletes were only allowed to leave the village for their specific sport. So judo Friday was the lightweights, and the, you know, and then Saturday were the middleweights, and Sunday the heavyweights. So after I finished fighting on the Friday, I hung around at the judo watching the finals and the gold and bronze medal fights. Saturday did the same thing, got out to the village to just go support the um, the, the middleweight guys, and basically spent the day at judo the Saturday and the Sunday because that would that would be the last time I'd leave the village until we left on the Thursday. So come Monday morning, we're literally confined to the village and our units where we, where we stayed, where we were just allowed to mingle with ourselves and within each other's, you know, in our own, own Aussie community. Although the setup there was awesome, there outside TV area, TV screens where you could watch live sports of other, you know, all the other events. And uh, they had like benches and tables outside where you could just catch up and have lunch and uh, chit chat and just chill amongst each other. You didn't have to, you know, confined to your room so which was which was really great yeah good and what are your plans now are you, are you thinking about 2024 <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm 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 actually taking some time off i enjoy cycling and running i, I ran quite often in, in part of my judo training program anyway but not very far distances i've, I've mingled in ironman events back in 2011 2012 2013 2014 2015 before my eye diagnosis so yeah, so I'm considering, you know, exploring the paracycling avenue, but I'll always be involved in judo. I love the sport. I love the physical challenge it, it gives a person. I'll probably just train socially. You know, I haven't been back to judo since arriving back. I'll go Thursday night. So yeah, I'm just, I'm just reassessing sort of, sort of training goals. I need a, I need some kind of goal. I can't just, you know, just tick along. So I've got my eye on some geathlons, some run cycle run events coming up and some trail runs that I'll, I'll look, to, look at doing. And then just socially carry on with some judo training, but yeah, just a bit of a change, a physical, a physical change in training. I think is what I'm needing. Yeah, sounds good. And as as a VI judo player, what advice would you have for someone who is maybe visually impaired and you know thinking about going to the Paralympics for judo? If there's visually impaired VI athletes that haven't tried judo, seriously suggest they they just. Google their local Google local judo clubs and just go give it a go. Doesn't matter what age. I still believe that, that judo has, has for me personally given me the physical confidence that I could take it into life. It just it, it's a, just a confidence builder. It's a discipline. It makes you disciplined as a person. It makes you respect others. It's such a good sport with regards to values and life values. So if there's this, if there's if there's people out there that are VR um, or even you know if you don't have a vision impairment just to give judo a try 
Uh, for those that are currently doing judo and with a vision impairment, there's like I thought there was no way I was going to qualify at my age. So irrespective of age, just take the next step. Like honestly, contact Paralympics Australia, drop them a online message saying, I train at this club, I've got a visual impairment, I'm interested in trying to qualify. Just take the next step like, like I did in 2015 or 2016, uh, beginning of 2016. Make contact because you just never know. You know, doors could open, you could find yourself, you know, with that inspiration to train for an upcoming event, it takes you to a different level of, of motivation and you just never know how, how it could pan out for you. Like, you know, just don't regret not trying. Yes, yeah, fantastic advice. I've got a question for you. Okay, so I've got a theory that VI judo players are better than non-VI judo players in the sense that with judo, it's so reliant on touch and feel that so a lot of the time we rely on sight because we have it as an option. But when you remove that element and you're reliant more on the feel and that sort of feedback, it actually allows you to understand judo a little bit better. Now, having been on both sides, how do you feel about that? Yeah, it's a difficult one because if you don't have a visually impairment and you do judo, you, you will never compete against a visually impaired judo player unless it's an open category at the nationals, like in Australia, for example, where you can actually, you know, yeah, it's a difficult one to answer. I, I do know that the actual fight time in visually impaired judo, grip, grip fight time is more than judo where, you, where you're grappling for a grip, which takes up sometimes, you know, 10, 15 seconds before you actually grip a person. In, you know, every time there's a mata and you restart, you then you're fighting for grip again. Take that out of it, and a jimmy is a jimmy. It's game on. Physical tenseness through your body from from the first second. So the amount of actually physical fight time is a lot more. Uh, so it's a lot more strenuous in in physical terms. The viajira. With regards to the feel, I, I honestly respect the, the the B1 players so much because they are the, the the real blind guys that can't see anything there. Uh, B3 and B2 still have some kind of vision. It's very impaired, but they still got some kind of vision. And the, the B1 players are, they, they just, so much respect for them to be able to still do judo and, and, and just go by feel. Because that's effectively what they will be doing. You know, they're just going by the feel of, of, of their opponents. So it becomes, I suppose, a visual thing for them in, in their mind as to, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one to answer, to be honest. But yeah, from, just from a physical point of view, there's, there's a lot more fight time in VR judo purely because they've taken the grappling part out of it and from from the from the word go you you're basically in it yeah i've fought a number of uh, vi players in the uk there's quite a strong vi team and i remember when i first fought 90 kilos the british championships i fought a lad sam ingham uh, and he beat the crap out of me <laughs> <laughs> really yeah very yeah. very physical very strong very physical player and I think a lot of that, a lot of that came from, like you say, um, you said about the grip in there. Just that straight away. Just once he got the grip on, I, there was no getting rid of it for love nor money. Yeah, it was just so strong in that, uh, and and just that developing that tension. So yeah, he was very good, very good player. Yeah, he got fifth at the Rio. Yeah, yeah, the the UK guys, but no, oh, did he? Did he fight in in Tokyo? Because there was there were two. British players, the heavyweights as well, they're like 90s and 100s, one in each, that did really, really well in Tokyo. I can't remember their names, though. Yeah, well, Elliot Stewart, the boy that won silver in 90s, we used to compete against each other. So, Oh, yeah. I, um, I, I, I've not spoken to him in many years, so I don't know the nature of his 
visual impairment, but he, he used to be, he, he didn't have it when, when I knew him. Yeah. We competed on the team all the way through sort of cadets and juniors in the UK. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, I've, and I've trained. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching that. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah, so I, I remember watching the, 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 the British guy in, in 90s and 100s. There's a, there's a 100s guy that did really well as well. Very impressed with the fight and was so, 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 so good. Yeah. It was interesting that you obviously comment about Australia judo because I know in, in the UK the, the VI team is, oh, you know, always would train with the, the British squad. It was, you know, they were part of the, the squad training sessions. Yeah. Uh, and they were included in, it, it, you know, it wasn't sort of like a, like a separate entity. It was just included within the, the main body um, of the team. Yeah, yeah. I hope it changes going forward from a judo Australia perspective. I hope they do open up to the uh, the VR judo program and 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 even accommodate the athletes at like the national levels and even the ranking events. You know, even if you just have two fighters attend, they can have a, a, a bout as a vision impaired you know contest. I hope they do open open as that avenue up for the VR VR judo players going forward. Yeah, well, I think I already know one player I would be spoken about that you've inspired. So hopefully there are other players that have been inspired by you going this time, and you know there's a, the more the more people that push it on can sort of ignore it forever. Yeah, hundred percent. And your player, like I said, please ask ask or just um, advise her to just contact Paralympics Australia and you know drop them a message just with a brief history of of her of her herself and her eye condition. And they they are so good at Paralympics Australia. I'll get back to straight away to tell her the next steps, which will be a classification as an next step to make sure. You know, a vision impairment is would be classified, and then yeah, I really, really encourage you just to take the next step and just get you know find out via Paralympics Australia, you know, how to get onto the uh, the pathway. Thank you for that, Wayne. Really appreciate your your time and you know sharing your story and the advice you've given. Yeah, awesome. Really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for making contact, David, and uh, good luck with your your judo club and training going forward.